this is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. All right, before we get going with this episode, I need your help. This show is starting to make some serious inroads in the soccer community with coaches, players, and those around the game. And I can't thank you enough for your support, for your messages, for the sharing of the show on social media. It really means the world to me when you do that. Help me continue to grow this podcast in three different ways. So way number one, you can find us on 11 different podcasting platforms. Places like Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, among others. If you listen to this show on Apple Podcast, stop what you're doing right now. Go there, leave a five-star rating and a review. If you've never done it before, it's incredibly easy to do. It would mean the world to me if you could do that. So here's what a recent guest and a listener to this show has said about this podcast. Jason is a quality interviewer who has great guests. You will pick up great things all across the coaching landscape. Can't recommend this enough. And my thanks to Rudy Radiger, the head men's and women's soccer coach at Lackawanna College for that tremendously nice review. Way number two that you can support this show. Tell a coaching friend or colleague, player, someone in the soccer community about this podcast. Word of mouth, believe it or not, in 2019 still matters. Your opinion about this show still matters. Podcasts are an absolutely fantastic professional development tool. I had mentioned on another coaching podcast of the number of podcasts that I listen to on a weekly basis. It's somewhere between 8 and 10 on any given week. Make this a part of your weekly routine by subscribing to the show. Way number three, if you'd like an episode of this show or something a guest has said about a particular topic, share it on social media and make sure that you tag me. My handle on Twitter or Instagram is at SoccerCoachJB. That helps other coaches, players, folks in the soccer community find out about this show. All right, let's get on with the episode. Black kids in my neighborhood don't play soccer. That is the thinking Chris Kessel, my guest in episode 23 of the On the Touchline podcast, has encountered throughout his coaching and soccer career. Kessel, who is the president and a coach at Westside Soccer Club in Charleston, West Virginia, and works primarily with underserved and underrepresented communities, mostly African-American, rural, and low-income. Chris Kessel wants each of his players to make soccer a lifelong activity. Black, white, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. Soccer isn't just for some, it is for all. He helped lead the creation of a futsal court to start a futsal meetup program on Fridays 
in the Charleston, West Virginia community. He is bringing soccer to youth players who may have never touched a soccer ball before. It's no secret, I am drawn to passionate, all-in coaches. Chris Kessel cares deeply about soccer in the United States and soccer within his home state of West Virginia. He has been an outspoken critic of the United States Soccer Federation. He's been an advocate for promotion and relegation as a new normal way of life for us as soccer fans here in the U.S. And he ran for the U.S. Soccer Federation vice presidency last fall. He talks about all those things in this episode of On the Touchline. I hope you enjoy my conversation in episode 23 with Chris Kessel. I guess we'll start by uh, tell folks a little bit about your journey. And uh, I think you grew up, I think I read in, in St. Albans, uh, West Virginia. And I'm, I'm curious as to what the soccer scene was like uh, growing up there and sort of what inspired you to have a love of soccer uh, at a young age. Well, yeah. So uh, thanks for having me on. So I grew up in a town called St. Albans, West Virginia. It was about 15 minutes from Charleston, where I live now. And um, I'm 43 years old. So it was 1980 when I started playing. And um, St. Albans Youth Soccer had started a year or two. Like now, I didn't know it back then, but it had started like four years before that. And um, the elementary school that I went to, uh, the uh, school board built a soccer field beside it. So St. Albans Youth Soccer expanded and uh there was a field right in my neighborhood right beside my elementary school told my parents that I wanted to play and they signed me up and I played straight through from five until I was in my 20s you know I it was just it was you know I was just like every other American kid you know during the time and you know a lot of American kids now and I played soccer in the fall and you know basketball in the winter and soccer in the spring and baseball in the spring also and you know whatever and in high school I wrestled some in the winter and you know just I played all the sports just like everybody else but you know soccer was something that I just I really really enjoyed playing and I think I enjoyed playing it because I had the most success at it to be honest you know what I mean just like any other kid you know you like what you're good at usually and I was a lot better at it than I was the other sports and um I just had a blast and uh you know, I once I got into my early 20s, my younger brothers um, was in high school and I ended up um, coaching, you know, his teams a little bit in the in their off season because a lot of the parents were like, OK, you played. We didn't. Can you come and help? And then I ended up coaching some. And that was my first toe in the water for coaching. And um, that's uh, that's really what got me to love the sport was just playing it you know, my whole childhood into my early adulthood. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was, a, it was a great experience. Soccer was really popular. You know, that period of time, I think a lot of people my age all across the country, it was explosive growth. 
You know, it went from nobody played it to lots and lots of people played it. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a fun time. Who would you say uh, growing up were, uh, I guess, some of your soccer idols or who did you kind of look up to, you know, uh, in terms of players? So I actually had never <clears> – so this is, a, this is a funny thing about it. Like, you know, we really weren't a uh, – we were not wealthy at all growing up. So, like, we didn't have cable or anything. So, like, I'd actually never seen a soccer game that wasn't played by, like, kids or high school students or whatever until I was an adult. I'd never seen one. Hmm. So I didn't have any idols. Like, literally, like, playing the game with my friends was the only thing that I had ever done with soccer. Mm-hmm. You know? I Well, I find that fascinating um, because I've, I've had conversations with um, some female coaches, and a number of them uh, are, are in the similar age demographic that you and I are uh, in. And they have all said mm-hmm. that, um, you know, hey, look, like, we didn't really have idols. There weren't, like, female soccer players we could look up to. And I, I find I found your, inter- your answer uh, very interesting in that the love of the game and the fun, you know, and success you had playing the game was mm-hmm. kind of what kept you going. And I, I think that's pretty, that's pretty neat. That's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. What were, what were some of your, your uh, youth coaches like, uh, you know, growing up? So uh, my youth coaches basically were just parents. So a lot of them obviously had never played before and they didn't really know a lot about it. And then I had a couple and the irony of that is, is that, uh, that that had played before they were all women. Like I didn't, I was getting, I don't know if you can get the buzzing, but, uh, uh, they were they were moms that had played. So like I didn't actually ever have a male coach that had ever played before. Like I had two of the players that I played with, their moms had played growing up like in other parts of the country, and those were the only coaches that I ever played for that were former players that actually gave us some sort of, you know, semblance of good coaching. So, you know, there was a whole lot of, um, you know, I know how to play basketball and a lot of spacing and, you know, and all this stuff kind of translates, especially when you're a little kid, you know. So we got a lot of the same kind of um, training that you would have gotten from basketball, except for they just had us use our feet instead of our hands. And the funny thing about that is, is um, my brother kind of was in the same kind of situation and um one of his coaches, and I'll never forget this, was uh, he just always had them, and they just called it keep away. Like, he literally just had them do rondos every day because he was like, hey, you know, on the field, you got to keep it away from everybody. So he just instinctually knew, like, hey, this is something that's going to work, make these kids better. And, you know, it, it's just funny how a lot of the stuff that if you're just, you know, a good – if you have a good grasp of, you know, sports and the psychology of kids, making them enjoy it. And um, even if you're not the best technical or tactical coach, you can help kids get better and you can really help them 
love the game so that they want to get better on their own. And, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is uh, lost with some people, in my opinion, is, is they forget that they are kids and you really have to get them to love playing, you know, for them to get to where they can potentially get to as players. Do you think that we've, um, I, I guess I would use the word uh, professionalized uh, youth sports, uh, you know, sort of in, in recent times. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious as your take on that because, um, you know, the, the, the part of it being fun for kids, I, I completely agree with. And I've, I've seen kids that I've coached, you know, walk away from the game because they've said, you know, hey, coach, it, it's just not fun anymore. And I, I, mm-hmm. I hate hearing that. Right. Um, that is right. I mean, for me, as a, as a youth coach, I judge success by sort of the retention of my players. Right. Mm-hmm. How many of them are going to come back and want to play next year? Um, yeah. But yeah, have we professionalized uh, youth sports too much in this country? Um, well, you know, it's a super interesting question. I mean, because like for the kids, so what I think this is kind of my opinion is, is uh, the people that are making a living for, from the game, coaching youth sports, this, this just isn't soccer. This is kind of across the board with all the, all the sports they've kind of pushed into groups of kids that don't necessarily want a professional atmosphere. They just want to get a little bit better with their friends and have fun and try to win games. Whereas, you know, they're not as committed as they need to be to be in a professionalized atmosphere. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. The, the kids that are, the kids that are hyper, you know, focused and whatever they need to be in a professionalized atmosphere. I mean, you know, so this, the talk really shouldn't be about like, uh, you know, this isn't, we can't paint with a, a broad brush here. Right. Like every kid is a unique individual and some of them need to be in that, you know, atmosphere. So, no, we haven't over-professionalized it for them. But some of the kids, now, this is more than likely not through the coach's fault, and it's not the kid's fault. It's probably the parent's fault that they're putting them in this situation that uh, they don't really want to be in, you know. And as parents, we have to, um, you know, we were talking before the podcast started. Both of us have three kids, and, you know, mine are starting to get to that age. They're, you know, 10 and 12 where it's their decision about how much they want to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I make them do things that they don't want to do, I know what that's going to turn into. They're just not going to want to do it anymore at all. You know? So it, 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 a lot of that over-professionalization of youth sports is the parents fault, you know? Yeah. I I, I would agree uh, with, with your take there because I think in, in many cases, I think, um, you know, parents are trying to to shoehorn their kid into a situation that might not be the best situation for them. And mm-hmm. yes, there are kids that are ultra competitive. They need that environment. They need, um, you know, uh, maybe they're they're better athletes or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, that there should be places for those types of kids, no doubt. 
but in the same breath, I, you know, not every player necessarily fits that mold. Right. I mean, some just want to right. do it just for fun. Right. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. I mean, it, it's yeah, really there's really not. yeah, you should all come back to that. Um, mm-hmm. So switch gears a, a little bit in terms of um, describe yourself as a coach. Uh, what is your philosophy? Uh, what are you like, you know, uh, on the touchline or at a training session? How would you describe, you know, uh, if I was just sort of casually watching, you know, from the sideline, uh, what, what would you say or how would you describe yourself? Um, you know, I try to be very positive. Like, you know, the, the kids that I work with um, oftentimes are new to the game or they uh, so. OK, well, let's let's get it. Let's take one little step back from that. So the club that I run, I'm the president of Westside Soccer. We are an inner city soccer club, you know, an urban club, whatever, what, however you want to describe it. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of kids that uh, are not from, you know, soccer households. They oftentimes are the first player in their family to play the game. And a lot of them come from backgrounds that uh, aren't the normal demographics of uh, where players in the United States come from. You know, we draw players from multiple housing projects and, you know, uh, the <clears throat> the poorest neighborhood here in Charleston. So like the uh, so the situations that we have um, when it comes to how we train the players is a little bit different because where they are new and they might be picking the game up at 10 years old, you know, 10, 11 years old, instead of been playing since they were four, it requires to me a little different style of coaching. We're very positive. We give all kinds of positive feedback and, and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, effort is rewarded and, um, because we want the kids to have a really positive experience so that they continue playing. And um, so it's, it's not just me, just across the board at our club, we try to, um, you know, really emphasize the successes that the kids have, even if they're very small. Because if, you know, some of the kids are obviously have been playing for six years and they're really good. And if we try to hold them, these new kids to that same standard, you know, it's a, uh, it's going to lead to a negative feedback loop to me. And we're going to have a lot of kids joining the club and then immediately wanting to quit because they feel like they're not able to achieve the success of the kids who are already, you know, having some quality to their game. So, you know, we try to um, individually judge these players and say, okay, that was great. You took a great first touch. Whereas we have an expectation for other kids. Okay. You know, that was great that you received it across your body and had a first great first touch. So, like, that's kind of where I am and and the coaches that I have in the club, we all try to operate in that same way. I think the the building a player up and, you know, I mean, soccer is such a – I mean, it's played between the ears, right? I mean, as much as it's played between the the lines on the pitch – and I say, and I, I can relate that a little bit to my son because there've been times in his very short, uh, you know, a footballing soccer career that, um, you know, I, I can just see it's in his head. 
And, you know, uh, my wife and I always talk about, you know, positive self-talk and positivity and, and just building up this confidence and whatever. And I mm-hmm. love that, that you and, you know, your team are sort of leading with that because I think, especially with a, a, a child, and it doesn't matter the sport, this isn't necessarily unique to soccer, that could make mm-hmm. or break them, right? I mean, you yeah. could yeah. you could be, be that person that inspires them to go on and do great things. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we probably, you and I probably had teachers or coaches or, you know, people in our lives that, you know, may have said, hey, Jason, like, no, you're not good enough at this. You know, you maybe need right. to find something else or whatever. And I mean, <clears throat> I, I get there's a there's a place in time for those conversations, you know, in sort of age appropriate mm-hmm. stuff. But right. I mean, who who's to say that a kid at eight, nine or 10, you know, if they're finding soccer for the first time, yeah, they might be a little later to the game. But who's to say, like, mm-hmm. you know, sky's the limit in terms of what they can do. So who is, you know, why should we as coaches sort of make that judgment to be like, well, you're not good enough or you are good enough. And you know what I mean? So an, an interesting thing about that is, is like, so when we're worried about who's good enough and who's not good enough, the goal, like we just talked about earlier, is is to make the kids love the game. Okay, he, he or she might not ever be good enough to achieve whatever standard that we want our players to get to. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to continue playing soccer for the next 50 years. Like I'm 43 and this is, so this makes 38 years. I started playing soccer 38 years ago and I still play. And if somebody went and watched me play now, they'd be like, man, Chris, you are a uh, very mediocre kind of chubby 43 year old player you know but I still love it you know so you know like I want every kid here that plays for West Side Soccer and that I that comes to one of my clinics or or anything I want them to continue playing for the rest of their life and you know if we can get you to be a little bit better tomorrow than you were today so that you are like oh man I, I like this I like getting better We've achieved our goal with coaching that kid as an individual because every one of these kids is just as important as the other one. You know, the good one and the one that's not as good, they're all just as important. They're all little people, and they all deserve our maximum effort, you know, to make them be the best player that they can be. I'm uh, I'm I'm ready to put my my boots on and my, my shin guards. I'm uh... <laughs> Chris, you got me fired up, man. I'm uh, I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, I I love your passion. I I think it's uh, it's infectious and it's certainly contagious. So that's a good thing. Um, yeah. Well, that that's a probably a good pivot into um, the accessibility of soccer in the United States and mm-hmm. in some communities where it is highly accessible and in other communities where it might not be. And right. you, know, you mentioned that um, in, in many cases, uh, the, some of the, the players that are coming to you, soccer may not be you know, a, a first sport. Um, they may be the first person right. in their family to ever touch a soccer ball uh, or mm-hmm. you know, want to kind of delve into that world. And I'm curious as to you know, kind of what your thought is on just accessibility of soccer in the United States right now. Um, well, you know, it's uh, there's two things hindering accessibility. I mean, this is from from my experience. I can't speak in every community, 
you know, just my community and the communities, the people that I talk to, there's two things hindering the growth of the sport into communities that don't normally participate, you know, whether it's rural kids, you know, poor kids, African-American kids, you know, that don't nor this, this isn't their first choice sport, you know, by and large is, uh, you know, the facilities aren't near where they live. And the second thing is, is the um, broad social aspect of, oh, no, rich white kids play soccer, you know, that holds back, you know, so if a kid goes, hey, I, I want to play that, you know, their friends or their parents or their, you know, cousins or whatever go, oh, no, 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 that's, that's for rich white kids, you know, or rich kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that is, is a second thing that makes it hard for kids to do the sport you know so you know we've not only like you know we built a futsal court um i don't know if you knew that but a few years ago um we uh converted me some other volunteers we raised a little bit of money and we converted an underutilized basketball court right downtown uh right downtown charleston into a futsal court and um so we started a weekly futsal meetup every friday we call it futsal friday it's adults and kids playing together. It's free, you know, and we work with the Charleston Parks and Recs in the wintertime, and they give us a, uh, a gym in one of the um, Parks and Rec centers, you know, one of the community centers to use it all winter on Fridays, clock to 8 o'clock. So we saw, as, you know, me and the, the guys that I do it with, um, we saw these same problems. We were like, okay, there is no field downtown on the east end on the flat part of the west side, there's no fields, period. There's no green space. So we got a futsal court. You know, kids act, you know, the cultural aspect of, oh, well, you know, we don't play that, whatever. Okay, well, come and try it for free. You know, you know, so, you know, I, my, my wife, you know, I'm white. My wife is black. My kids are biracial. You know, kids, my kids go to a, a you know, a very diverse school. It's like, all right, kids, invite all your friends. You know, so, very purposely inclusive, you know, to who we, you know, we put it out on all of our social media and we were purposely very inclusive, like, okay, you know, black kids in my neighborhood don't really play soccer. Well, let's invite them. You know, it's not good enough for us to say, Hey, everybody's allowed to do this. Like, that's not, that's like not excluding people is the, uh, the minimum standard, you know, but mm-hmm. when you reach into communities and you say, hey, please come and do this with us, that's what we should all be striving for. Like, you know, that's that's the thing. Like, if you're not reaching out to bring people into the game and reaching out to bring them into the fold, like, are we doing enough? So that's one of the things that we do. We purposely reach into communities that aren't normally playing soccer and we try to get the kids to come and play. And we try to get, so, you know, our club is around 60% African-American kids. And um, so we started a 7v7 adult league with some of the other clubs in the area, the community clubs in the area. And we invite all the parents to come and play in our 7v7 league. 
you know, so all of our youth clubs have like these seven V seven adult teams, you know, uh, that play also. So I invite all these parents who have never played before. Hey, come and play. And some of them have started playing with us and they have a blast. And to a person, everybody is like, man, I wish I would have played this when I was a kid. Because soccer is awesome. I mean, like at the end of the day, it's mm-hmm. super fun, you know. Well, I, I, the comparison I would make, um, my, my older brother plays in a, a pickup basketball league, um, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, some, some buddies that he, he worked with and some friends of ours. Um, you know, I, I remember as a kid uh, going to the local baseball field and we would play home run derby and, you know, uh, play uh, baseball all day. We'd go to the basketball court and there'd be a game going on. And yep. I'm always surprised. And you know, uh, having been to different places in this country of, you know, I, I, I often say to myself and I say to my wife, like, why isn't there a futsal court? I mean, I've talked to folks who have gone to Europe and they say, like, you know, go to go to Germany. You can find a futsal court literally on every corner. Um, right. So, I mean, I, just access. Right. I mean, you need a surface and a ball to play this game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like it doesn't need to be overly in depth. Right. And, um, man, I, I love yeah. that. Just the, you know, the, the community impact and just the, um, you know, sort of the uh, community building that you're doing, you know, in the Charleston community. I mean, I think that's fantastic. Uh, I'm curious, where did that come from? Like in terms of, have you always been sort of this, uh, Hey, you know, I'm Chris and you know what, I'm going to take on the world today. Or is this something that you sort of learned or just through your life experiences or, or, or whatever? So um, kind of a little bit of a little bit of a lot of different things. I'm, you know, I used to keep a second job as like I ran like a little kind of uh, marketing company and a music studio as a side business. Hmm. So like I was always out in the community doing things and and whatever you know so like being out and talking to people and and all that stuff was always there you know and then my day job for a big long portion of that was I was a 4-H agent and I don't know if you know what 4-H is but it's like yeah the world's largest organization and um I was uh you know right in a community center a different community center than the city gives us for uh the gym but right in the middle of the city. It was called the Roosevelt Neighborhood Center is where my my office was. And I did after school programming and in school enrichment in all the elementary and middle and high schools, you know, in the city or in the county, actually. And um, so I did a whole lot of youth development activities and I learned a lot and it uh, gave me a uh, better understanding of kind of what it takes to help kids. Like um, one of the things that was very prevalent when it came to uh, the way that we were supposed to program was you can't save kids. You have to teach them to save themselves. And um, you know, so you can't just come in and pick a kid up and just, you will them into having the life that you want them to have for themselves. You have to help them get to that. 
you know, they have to make all the decisions and they have to uh, make, you know, get where they want to be. You know, you have to help them decide that they want to go further than they think that they can. So when I stopped being a 4-H agent and I moved on to a different part of my career and at the same time, basically, is when I stopped having the music studio and the marketing company and everything as the side business, that's when a lot of my growth in really trying to grow soccer happened because there was a giant void now of I'm no longer professionally working with kids and I have all this free time because I no longer have a small business that I run in the evenings. So like that, it kind of turned from me working within the community as a job to, okay, I have a different job, but I want to continue working in the community to try to help kids. So boom, here I am. I get the opportunity to run the club and, you know, I'd already been coaching and stuff, but, you know, so, and it's manifested itself into doing all this other stuff. I think that's uh pretty, yeah, pretty incredible. And uh, I just, I love sort of the, the psychology of, uh, you know, how people have gotten to sort of where they are, you know, uh, in, in their career. Um, More of my conversation with Chris Kessel after you hear about this special offer of listeners of this show from Duke Tig Brand. I recently became a Duke Tig Brand FC member. And because of that, I would like to pass on a 10% savings to you as a listener of this podcast the next time you purchase a product from Duke Tig Brand. So if you're not familiar with Duke Tig, Duke Tig was started by two professional soccer players who felt something was missing when it came to planning sessions, organizing your philosophy, and figuring out your own personal style as a player or as a coach. These things should be enjoyable and involving a high quality product. One of the goals of Duke Tig Brand is to provide the soccer community with those types of products. I've used the Duketig brand trainer 2.0 plus for over a year now. I use it to plan my sessions. I use it to reflect on games, on sessions that have happened individually and as a team. And I absolutely swear by it. So go to duketigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. When you check out, use the promo code Broadwater 19. That's B R O A D W A T E R in the numbers 1 9. That will save you 10% on your next order. Go there now and take advantage of the savings today. Make a, make a little bit of a, a hard pivot. Uh, so I, I, I will say, uh, unabashedly, I, I love that you're uh, an outspoken critic of the soccer landscape uh, in this country. And, you know, mm-hmm. in many cases, the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation uh, promotion relegation. So if I say just a few different uh, topics, I, I, I'm curious as to like the first thing that comes to your mind. And I, I did this okay. with a, a guest a couple of weeks ago and it was sort of like a, almost like a rapid fire. And uh, so okay. 
So if I say promotion relegation, what comes to mind? Necessary. I mean, are we looking for like one word answers or, or are we looking for short answers here? But necessary. Yeah. The way well, that I like this, the, the way that I like to describe why it's necessary is, is that if we hope for all the other changes that are needed, because promotion and relegation isn't like some sort of, you know, magic pill, you know, but what it's going to do is it's going to allow all of the other necessary changes to reach their full potential. I agree. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, we're, we're very much like-minded uh, on that issue. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a s- systemic issue and uh, I, I think it starts there and, you know, uh, everything else kind of trickles down because I think what people forget and I, I've told folks this uh, locally that, you know, for all of us, and, I, and I'm guilty of it, when we complain about coaching fees or we complain about getting into a coaching course or we complain about cost of a, a ticket to go see, you know, the, the men's or women's national team, those are all side effects of the actual disease uh-huh. that is U.S. soccer, right? We're not, we're just, those, those are symptoms, right? And right. so we're not tr- treating the disease. We're not treating the system that is the problem. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, man, you, you, na- you nailed it. <laughs> uh, if I say MLS, uh, what, what comes to mind? Uh, you know, MLS is, um, is, what is the word I'm looking for here? Regulatory capture. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think that MLS is just like you said, is a symptom. You know, MLS, what happened was of regulatory capture of the United States Soccer Federation. I was, uh, I forget who it was. I think it was John uh, Peronich. He had tweeted out something in the last couple of days and, uh, I, I didn't tweet back to him, but immediately I thought of the song from the Eagles, uh, the Hotel California uh, or Ho- Hotel California, because once you check in, <laughs> you can't ever check out. Right. Right. <laughs> you were you were in and uh, you can never leave. And I thought, man, like that is the MLS in a nutshell. Like, you yeah. know, in, in these cities, they pony up ridiculous amounts of money i mean look what happened with uh what's going on in nashville right i mean i mean that that's crazy that's crazy uh if i say the name don garber uh what comes to mind um you know don garber is probably i mean i you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I try not to think about Don Carver, you know, <laughs> but, you know, he's doing his job. His job is to look out for MLS. So, like, you know, Don Garber might be a super nice guy if we were hanging out drinking a beer. I don't know him, and he's just doing his job. I would uh... – Man, that's a that's a very nice answer, right? <laughs> right. Um, well, uh, it reminds me of um, sort of Roger Goodell for the NFL and the fact yep. that his job is to make money, and uh, yeah. 
that's what's happening, right? Um, you know, with the, with the MLS and look at the, the franchise freeze and the expansion of the league and um, mm-hmm. some of the infrastructure in terms of stadiums and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and like you said, I mean, who knows? I mean, if we had a beer with him, maybe, maybe he's a nice guy. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> if, if we go back to, you know, it's the Federation's fault that MLS is able to have the sway that they have and Don Garber's able to have the power that he has over how the game is managed in this country. I mean, it's the Federation's fault. I mean, if the, if the Federation put clamps on what he was able to do, then would people really be as concerned with what he thought about everything? No, they wouldn't, you know, I mean, he's just doing his job. Well, so I was going back and I was looking at, um, your uh, Twitter uh, sort of uh, presence is uh, is very much welcomed because I I think you you call out the the bullshit when you see the bullshit, Chris, and I and I love that, and I think that that's part of what wanted me to have you on my show. Um, so I'm I'm looking at a tweet. This is from like late in January, and uh, okay. kind of t- touches on a little bit of what you said. I'll, I'll just read just part of it. Um, so parents, by and large, have no clue what kind of massive dysfunctional mess uh, youth soccer is in the U.S. Uh, And I'm not even talking about the systematic inequality, classism, et cetera. That is at least being talked about on the periphery of the media, if you look. Um, And then you went on and you had some other stuff. And uh, folks want to go see that uh, look on uh, January 26th. Um, But maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that, of how helping the average person maybe listening to this that doesn't understand how all these things might be connected to one another and that it goes back to sort of the, the systematic problem, not the symptoms of the disease itself. Right. Uh, You know, I would say that your average person involved with soccer in this country, you know, whether it's a parent of a youth player or an amateur adult player or, you know, a coach, a club coach, even club administrators, they don't really understand how the game is managed in this country. They don't get the interplay between, you know, maybe if you do U.S. youth soccer, you know, your state association and how it's tied to the federation. You know, U.S. club soccer is, you know, in competition with U.S. youth soccer and how there's all these other AYSO and SAY, you know, just uh, U-triple-S-A, and there's just so many competing sanctioning organizations and the sanctioning, you know, the registration wars and, you know, why we have to pay this fee, who sets how many, you know, coaching courses there are and how many open slots there are and where they're located. Like, people don't really get what's happening. Like, um, the the longer that I'm involved with the governance of the game, because uh, in addition to being the president of a club, I'm the president of uh, our local league here. We have 10 clubs in it and, you know, over 3000 players and whatever. And I'm on the West Virginia soccer board and I went to that U S soccer AGM and I'm going again this year as a voter again, and you know, the longer that I'm involved, the more because 
you know, I've been researching a lot because once I really got my claws into it and I was like, I don't really understand what's going on. Like, let me figure out why this is happening. Why can't I do this? Why can't my kids do that? You know, the research, then the more you get into it and the more you see that it's all dysfunctional and it's this group fighting against that group. And you think that this group has power, but really the Federation says this and you can't do that because of that. Like just people don't really get it. And um, I think that if more people like kind of understood what was going on, I mean, think about it. I don't know how closely you follow the U.S. soccer um, presidential elections the last round. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think people really grasp how hard it will be for a non-MLS approved candidate to win one of these positions is. Um, You know, because when, if you... If the um, the pro council votes one way and the athletes council goes with them, you know, that's 40, whatever, 46 percent of the vote right there. You know, so you have to sweep all of these state associations and U.S. club and, and uh, you know, all, all of these different, you know, the adult, you know, the adult associations for every state and you have to sweep all of those hundreds and hundreds of people um, to even then make it a race. Like people just didn't get that before that, you know, it was impossible to find all that information online, you know, to find out the, the nominating process wasn't even online for people to see how to run and all this secrecy and all of that. And, you know, now, Luckily, during the race, a lot of great people invested a lot of time and energy into getting all that information out there for everybody. So, you know, people just don't understand, like, what's going on, who the players are, how change is going to have to happen, and what's going to have to happen. And if people did know all this, now, I don't know if that would make them give up or if it would make them redouble efforts to like try to change things, or if they would just say, Hey, we're done with us soccer and we're going to try to do something else. You know, like, I don't know how people would react, but you know, we need people, regular people, you know, like the listeners to your podcast and the people that follow me on Twitter and, you know, everybody's social media to like learn, you know, and to, to become, you know, more um, engaged in the process of how the game is governed in this country. Well, it makes me think back to, uh, you know, candidates like Hope Solo and uh, Eric Winalda that, uh, you know, certain uh, members of the soccer community may have thought that they were crazy (laughs) Uh in what they were saying and sort of their platform, uh, you know, to, to run on. And, uh, uh, you know, to, to become a U.S. soccer president and I, I give both of them tremendous credit in terms of at least attempting to rip the Band-Aid off and expose kind of what you were saying. That, and thank God, right, that some of this has been brought to light. And, you know, I love when you share out 
some things on Twitter about, you know, financials or about like uh, what the athletes council is doing or, you know, things mm-hmm. of that nature, because Chris, you're exactly right. I mean, if you were to stop the average parent on a Saturday morning and say, you know, explain to me sort of the governing structure of U.S. soccer, they, they would look at you and I as if we were speaking a foreign language. Uh, you know, they would look at us as if like, what the hell are you talking about? You know what I mean? I'm just here to watch my kid play. They don't understand the, you know, I guess I would go as far as saying the political ramifications of, of all of this. So I agree with you that, um, you know, it takes folks like you and me and, you know, everyone else out there sort of all rowing in the same direction to, to illustrate change and kind of bring about change. Did right. that sort of contribute in any way, uh, I guess, to, you know, you running for vice president in you know, kind of was that a, a way to say, like, look, like, no, like we collectively need to rise up together and sort of take on the, you know, take on the man, I guess you could say. Well, you know, one of the main things that uh, happened during the presidential election last year was is for the first time that I had seen. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, I've done a lot of research, obviously, to try to find out a lot of this information that I've put out there. A lot of reading, you know, articles from 1997 on that are on the internet, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this past presidential election was the most in-depth and best discussion about what is happening in American soccer and how to fix it that there has ever been. You know, more people now know how the sausage is made than ever before. And I wanted to run for vice president of the Federation to make sure that that conversation continued. You know, yes, I wanted to win, but I absolutely felt that the conversation about how to better manage the game in this country needed to continue. And that's why I threw my name in the ring you know, threw my hat in the ring. Where, uh, where do you see us in, uh, you know, uh, 10 years, uh, is a, is a soccer country. Um, or are we better off than, than where we are now? Uh, you know, I sure hope so. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I think positive. I mean, I, I really think that, that we can change things, you know, some of the stuff that's happening right now, in the game in the United States um, leads me to believe that there is going to be massive change. I mean, I'm such a huge fan of what NPSL pro is a trying is trying to accomplish. I mean, for the listeners out there that maybe don't know what's going on, they are trying to establish pro soccer outside of the United States soccer federation's professional league standards which are um, detrimental, in my opinion, and many, many people's opinion, to um, growing professional soccer in this country. And it is, they are 100% without a doubt um, harmful to trying to create an actual pyramid where teams can move up and down it. So they are attempting to create something outside of the PLS, the, the, you know, that the Federation – has set up to dampen competition for first division soccer 
you know, in this country to, to basically help protect MLS from competition. And um, I'm super excited about that. And, you know, even though I'm not a huge fan of how USL is structured, like it's exciting to see some of these USL people coming out and investing, you know, in their club, like the Fort Lauderdale announcement from today where they're trying to build a, a $100 million stadium at Lock, you know, Lockhart Stadium where the, you know, the strikers used to play. I mean, that's a huge investment. And eventually, you know, I say this all the time, eventually there's going to be too many rich guys trying to get into the game for MLS to be able to keep control of everything. You know, rich people don't like being told no, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of rich people involved in lower division soccer now, and every year it becomes more and more. And with alternate pathways like MLS Pro, I mean, uh, NPSL Pro, and, um, you know, what a lot of other people are trying to start and the exciting stuff that, like, the Gulf Coast Premier League and the Great Plains Premier League and, you know, a lot of these other rumored things that are going on out there, you know, with these regional amateur leagues, you know, it's, it's exciting times for the growth of lower division soccer in this country. And in my opinion, eventually a bunch of people are going to just say, okay, we have to do this. We have to get together. We have to band together and we have to make an alternate pyramid. And, uh, you know, when you get hundreds and hundreds of clubs banded together, you know, then when you petition CONCACAF and you petition FIFA, like, hey, U.S. soccer isn't following the rules, you know, they have to listen to you because you are at that point hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clubs, not just, you know, some random fans on Twitter, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's sort of all galvanized for me um, when I was watching. This was around the holidays. Uh, Sunderland Till I Die. Uh, on Netflix, what a man, that that was an awesome. I loved it. Yeah, uh, likewise. And what it means to the people of that community, right? I mean, imagine being in Charleston and having that, where mm-hmm. you know there's a, a possibility you could advance uh, or move up, you know, to the the next division, and that it's based on merit, right? It's not based on you know, how deep, how deep the pocketbooks uh, are for the owners or whatever. And I mean, man, and, and the same thing here in Pittsburgh that um, like, yeah, I would love to get behind the local, uh, you know, get behind the river hounds. And I would love right. to, you know, support them because, but at the end of the season, it doesn't matter if they've had the best season in franchise history, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, they, they're not going up, they're not going down. Uh, and when they may, may go down depending on, you know, what, whatever they decide to do with the league. Um, but they sure as hell ain't going up. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, someone had told me, I think it was actually John uh, Pranich that, I mean, the amount of money that is being left on the sidelines mm-hmm. because the wealthiest people in the MLS, you know, think that they're sort of protecting the money. And, you know, they've upped the, the, the franchise sort of expansion fee or, or whatever from what it was 
you know, right. early early two thousands. I mean, I, I swear. I mean, and, and maybe you and I are the crazy ones, but I think there is a deep interest and love of soccer in this country. And people look at me sideways when I say that, but I mean, it's out there, right? I mean, it's going on in your community. It's going on in my community. I mean, more kids play soccer in my community, like in the greater Charleston area here than any other sport. More kids play organized soccer than any other sport. And nobody in the country is going to point to West Virginia and say, man, that's a soccer hotbed. You know what I mean? Yeah. More kids play it here, play it than any other sport. You know, now what happens? Why does, why is that not translating? I think that you've hit the nail on the head because every community is not engaged in soccer in this country, you know, and it's not going to happen until every community has a chance to reach its maximum potential. Can everybody make the first division? No, but we can always have hope that my sixth division team in my community can make it to the fourth division. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, are you telling me that communities in, you know, uh, England aren't excited about trying to make it to the football league. They, they would to be in league two. That's like a huge thing yeah. for a smaller community, you know? Yeah. And do I do, would do I hold out and think that, Oh man, Charleston, we could support a club that could compete in the first division in the United States. Probably not, but you know, what could happen? You know, we could make it to the second division or the third division, Mm -hmm. or you never know. Like, it's not like WVU hasn't competed for national championships. You know, you have put together a good three- or four-year run, you know, and there you are. So everybody would be engaged. Like Chattanooga, look at Chattanooga. It is no threat to make it to have an NFL team or an NBA team or a Major League Baseball team, but that community – is so invested, you know, that could you see Chattanooga being a soccer hotbed in this country? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. You know, and who's going, the only thing that is stopping them from reaching their potential now is the Federation. Chris, that's, I, man, what a good place to leave it. Uh, yeah, I just I I feel I I'm with you. I I feel strongly uh, about this, and uh, you know, for for folks who listen to this podcast and follow you, and you know, connect with other sort of like-minded folks, man. I mean, we just got to continue to band together and uh, and beat the drum beat the drum loud. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> no one said change was going to be easy, right? <laughs> exactly. So if. Exactly. Uh, if folks want to connect with you and um, follow along in your journey, or if they're ever in the Charleston community um, in West Virginia, uh, how, how can they do that? Uh, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at the Chris Kessel. You know, you can actually look for me on Facebook, you know, Chris Kessel. And I accept everybody that adds me as a friend. I still have like a thousand spaces left. And 
you know, <laughs> so whether you're on Facebook or, or Twitter, you can, you know, add me and I, you know, I'm always, my Facebook is more of my family, but my Twitter is all about the, you know, all about soccer, you know, soccer and hip hop. And, uh, there we go. So you can just follow me there and join in the conversation and hopefully, uh, you know, if you're on the fence, you know, you can see something and, you know, read something. You know, I post blog articles every once in a while. I've written uh, a whole lot of blog articles, you know, and it's a uh, pro rail for USA, you know, dot blogspot dot com and uh, look it up and read all kind of read to your heart's content on there. And I try to answer, you know, questions about it and commonly held misconceptions about you know why things are the way they are or you know what would happen if you know the pyramid would be opened up and you can just read you know any of my articles on there and i'd love to hear from you so just uh you know there you are yeah chris i can't thank you enough man for uh coming on the latest episode of the, the on the touchline podcast and I wish you nothing but success, man. And uh, I hope we can stay connected and just would love to see where this goes. Uh, man, what a, what an exciting journey. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of positive things in the future. Yeah. You know, thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. Man, I absolutely loved that conversation with Chris Kessel. And as I mentioned during the conversation, that uh, if you don't feel like you're ready to put your boots and your shin guards on and get out on the pitch, you're definitely doing something wrong. So what did we learn from this episode? Every kid in the soccer community matters. It's easy to coach the players who are a little more advanced at the youth level. Spend time with those ones that haven't peaked yet. I was a late bloomer in life. There's a lot of kids that fit that description. And if you're a coach and if you're a player, pay attention to those kids. They matter. I absolutely love Chris's work with the underrepresented community and underserved community in the Charleston area in West Virginia. I challenge each of us as coaches to work with those communities, invest in those communities, give folks in those communities an opportunity to experience the joy that soccer can bring to someone's life. If you're doing that already, absolutely fantastic job, but we can always do better. And last but not least, continue to ask the hard questions of the U.S. Soccer Federation. We must do better, we must demand better, not only as fans, but as supporters of this game in the United States. Don't confuse dissension with disloyalty. A previous guest on this podcast said those very words, and I think of that from time to time. It's okay to ask the tough critical questions of a federation that in my experience, and in my opinion, has let us down as a soccer country. (music) 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the On The Touchline podcast. New episodes are available every Wednesday and every Saturday. And until next time, I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.